Hi there, this is Kent Rowdy, a USH med student. I'm with two students today, commonly known as the Jays, uh, to talk a little bit about anorexia. Let's do introductions. Jonathan, do you want to start? Yep, I'm Jonathan Hansen. I'm a third year medical student from Rocky Vista. And Julia. I, I am Julia, and I am also a third year medical student with RVU. All right, now, Julia, as you probably know, if it's your podcast, you get to tell us a little bit more, right? Yes. What are you going to tell us that's a little bit more today? Um, I guess I could start with we are at that point in the third year where you should probably have some sort of idea where you would like to head after school. Um, and at the moment, I'm deciding between OB and psych, but after this month, I'm definitely leaning more psych. So. And in all fairness, you were leaning more OB after your OB rotation. Is that correct? <laughs> I was actually leaning more OB after my surgery rotation, but that was just because I love surgery and I love women's health. And OB was my very first rotation, so I was very nervous. Fair enough. It's all wonderful specialties, mm -hmm. right? And wherever you land, I think you'll enjoy it. It's surprising. Most of, most of the students that I have come through here really are not planning on going into psychiatry. And I'm not sure what uh, the difference is, but I think since the students from Rocky Vista campus from Ivan's have started coming here for their rotations, there are fewer students that are looking at psych initially, and I'm not entirely sure why. Also, the Rocky Vista campus, it seemed like this rotation changed a few people's minds, and I'm not sure why that was, but I don't see that as often anymore either, that students come in thinking, I'm going to go into X, Y, and Z, but I really liked this rotation, so I'm thinking something different, right? So this is, this is uh, some patterns that have changed a little bit over time, and as you know, we'll be very interested to see where you end up. Yeah, actually, um, Dr. Told was my advisor, and when we were talking about everything, he actually told me that there were quite a few students who came here and had their minds changed about going into psych, so. He kind of prefaced this rotation for me because <laughs> I had that like maybe a week before coming here. He, he uh, we should have a podcast on Dr. Told one of these days about <laughs> what a wonderful person he is. So anorexia is the podcast today. And one of the things I like to do is ask, why this topic? How did this come to your mind? Um, uh, yeah, of course. So I guess I would like to personally start with maybe like almost like a content warning in some ways. I know this is mostly an educational podcast, but in case you are someone that stumbles upon this and have a history of an eating disorder, this might be a topic you don't want to listen to. This is mostly intended, I mean, entirely intended as an educational podcast for medical students for their shelf, but I figured that was something I would personally like to add in the beginning. And then the reason why I chose this is because um, I think it's a really interesting topic and I think that the role that physicians play in weight loss is really interesting. And then the societal norms of um, kind of like diet culture also really interests me and like kind of I would love to like see more research on how much that plays into anorexia and how much of it is more like purely psychiatric, like obsessive thoughts. I don't know that that whole world really interests me. That's why I chose it. It's a fascinating topic and one that we've reviewed a number of times 
here at the hospital because of the complexity of the patients that come in, the comorbidity with uh, physical illnesses, the comorbidity with other psychiatric conditions, the mortality associated with this con condition, all very, very significant. Let's start off with the diagnosis of anorexia. What are the key points and the key principles that are tested regarding the diagnosis of anorexia? Yeah, so for the diagnosis, the patient has to have a BMI of less than 18.5 or 5% of their expected body weight. And then there also has to be a fear of weight gain and um, their perceived body image is low. There are actually two subtypes, um, one being restriction, which is where they just aren't eating, they're restricting, restricting their calorie intake, and the other being um, binging and then purging, um, which, yes, those are kind of the starting points. That's actually where I got one of my questions wrong was the binging and purging subtype. Um, because they were expecting me to calculate the BMI and realize that it was less than 18.5, putting them in the anorexia category and not just the bulimia category, but it actually went into the um, anorexia category at that point. So very, very important. A couple of things I want to point out here. First of all, that BMI is incredibly important, right? And the associated perceptions of body image. Those have to go together. And the question that does trip up students over and over and over is that distinction between the BMI. Now UWorld uses an 18.5% uh, or an 18.5 BMI as their cutoff, right? Mm -hmm. And if we look at the DSM-5, it's slightly different at this point. And they, they break it down into mild, moderate, severe, and extreme anorexia with those uh, categories starting at 17 or above for mild with the other symptoms present and then it moves to 16 to 17 roughly for the moderate, 15 to 16 for severe and then below 15 BMI for uh, extreme. Right, mm -hmm. and, and we read a couple of very interesting case scenarios and saw some interesting data as we read through some of the articles about BMI being on that level. Now, did it give you the ability to calculate the BMI in that test question? Because I'm not sure I know the equation for BMI calculation. Yeah, so they gave us the weight in kilograms and then they gave us the height in centimeters. And then you have to convert the centimeters into meters and do meters squared. And so it's your kilograms divided by meters squared equals BMI. Okay. I think there might have also been a little bit of a hint to the percent of pers like expected body weight in that one, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure I would not have been able to calculate the BMI <laughs> either. So <laughs> I think that might have also been in there. I'm not sure. All right, so how do we then, the, the differential here, the thing that's really important and trips a lot of people up is the difference between anorexia and not, not the restricting type, right? That's the easy one. But anorexia, binging, purging type, and bulimia uh, nervosa. And what are the key differences then? I'll have you go over those again if you wouldn't yeah, mind. Yeah, so Julia. for bulimia, it is... I guess also you might want to be able to differentiate even bulimia from binge eating, from anorexia, binging, purging. Um, so for bulimia, it is binging and an inappropriate compensatory behavior. So 
that could look very much like the binging purging form of anorexia. The biggest difference being that if their BMI is under 18.5, according to your world, that qualifies them as having anorexia, not bulimia. And then to differentiate bulimia from binge eating disorder, um, it's really that compensatory behavior. And this, <laughs> I feel like I'm saying that word really weirdly. <laughs> compensatory. Um, I think you're saying it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't sound right coming out. But uh, the one thing um, that kind of tricked me up on one of the questions where it was binge eating, not bulimia, was... Um, it was someone who just, like, had decided to exercise a lot the next day because they had eaten a lot, which I think our society has kind of normalized in some ways, um, especially if you are, like, a, a young female, as I am. Like, that is something you see or hear a lot of people doing. Um, so in my head, I was just like, oh, I mean, it must be binge eating. But that actually qualified it as having bulimia. So, as having bulimia because there was a compensatory mechanism. What are the other compensatory mechanisms that we might see uh, or need to know about as we practice medicine or we prepare for shelf exams? Um, Laxative use and then self induced vomiting are the two big, major, like pretty commonly tested forms. So, I was reading uh, Wikipedia today. it's not where I necessarily go for all of my information, but I was curious about Karen Carpenter, one of the singers in the Carpenters uh, group. And it seems like one of the compensatory mechanisms she used was thyroxin or thyroid replacement medication to try and increase her metabolism mm. as a compensatory mechanism. Her case, I think, because the BMI appeared to be much lower than 18.5 was anorexia, but that would be something that would fall into a compensatory mechanism, I believe, also. Totally, mm-hmm. yeah. That, that is definitely a compensatory behavior. I think anything that, like, I think in the question, it's the real difference is going to be with binge eating. They're just going to have those periods of binging. It said at least one or more episodes per week for three months of binge eating and then there might I think there are there feelings of guilt yes yeah there's feelings yeah there's feelings of guilt but there's no behavioral component that changes after the binging and I thought another thing that was interesting is that the binging episodes need to happen in under two hours there was a time limit on the binging portion interesting that it needed to be within two a two hour time limit now when, when we looked at mortality There's a clear difference in mortality associated with these different conditions. Mm -hmm. I've been in situations where it feels like I'm in a fight to be able to get somebody with a BMI um, that's in the 15s or 14s. Even when we get up to like 17, which is still not very high, people start saying, well, we don't want people to be overweight. And as I look at the mortality, I'm not seeing the risk with even binge eating disorder where you, know, you would think that these would be horrifically high rates of death. It just doesn't look like it has the same kind of mortality. How, how is my perspective on that? What, how did you read the data on that? Um, I think that is very much true what you are reading. Um, I read a, a kind of one of the very few papers I could find. I'm sure there are more. There's obviously endless things you can read, but... It was kind of um, assessing mortality in multiple forms of eating disorders, which I thought was interesting. And um, in theirs, anorexia had a a standardized mortality ratio of 5.35, so over 5% higher than the general population. 
But then if you look at binge eating, it was 1.5. I want to, I think that SMR is five times, not 5% higher, but oh, five sorry. times yes. higher almost. Yeah. <laughs> and now, that was interesting because this is a specialty hospital in Germany. They had, uh, what, almost 6,000 patients that came in through something called the Christina Bars study. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Christina Bars is somebody who died from anorexia, and there is uh, like a, a, a group that has put money together in her name to try and have better treatments for anorexia, mm -hmm. right? Prevent what? Prevent this from happening to other people. It seems like this is a very preventable illness, and yet it has incredible morbidity and mortality. And I think that's what struck me about this article was that low BMI seems to be associated with death in people with anorexia or irregular discharges. It looks like the people that are more likely to die are people that go into the hospital and the therapist finally says, hey, we're, we're just not making this work. You're gone. I don't know. But maybe those are you know, the, the people that are the most ill and the most, you know, my experience has been people that are very severely ill from anorexia have a hard time engaging in treatment. It's often compulsory, and compulsory treatment is never as easy or as effective as, as uh, treatment where somebody is coming up and saying, look, I've got a problem, I know I do, let's, let's take care of this, right? That insight or anosognosia, that insight impairment or anosognosia seems to be very prominent. I also just want to pull out from that study, if I can, mm -hmm. that the risk factors for bulimia um, for early death seem to be more associated with suicidality than they did associated with anything else other than that irregular discharge. And again, it's hard to know exactly what that means, both according to the way we read the article and the author and their comments, right? So, so anorexia, death goes back directly to BMI. Mm -hmm. Changing that BMI seems to help people live longer. The higher you get that BMI, the better off our patients are. And for uh, mortality in patients with bulimia, it seems like the more we can address the risk of suicidality and perhaps associated moods, then perhaps the better off we are. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I pulled from that too. I think one of the more interesting things about that to me were um, that most of the patients who had anorexia um, died due to natural causes, according to the article, which I think is a weird way of phrasing it in my in my opinion, I was reading it and it kind of like took me back a little bit and then there's a pretty good table in it that kind of breaks it down and that made it a little bit more, but I was kind of wondering what you thought about that. So I, I was actually just hoping that this would lead into that table. So I saw the natural causes and I think I had Diet Coke spurting out of my nose when I saw that, right? Because I was thinking, well, is anorexia a natural cause? And the answer is no, it's not if we think about inducing that to yourself, but it is a natural outcome of the weight loss, right? So cachexia, circulatory collapse, organ failure, these were all natural causes of death. It wasn't suicide, it wasn't gunshot wound, right? It wasn't a motor vehicle accident. But they clearly related these things back to um, the, the low BMI. And the other thing that they pointed out in this article that I thought was very interesting was these patients that were dying, they were able to get BMI, BMI numbers for uh, these natural death causes and the BMI was 12.5, right? So these are severely emaciated people who, who don't have the energy, and, and by energy I mean the nutritional energy to be able to stay alive, right? 
I wonder what your thoughts are. You yeah. threw that to me. I'll throw it back to you. <laughs> no, that's kind of how I thought about it, too. I thought the one thing that was pretty consistent amongst almost every article I read was that the lower your BMI, like just the worse your outcomes were, no matter if it was looking at refeeding syndrome or ability to gain weight or outcomes, it seemed like the lower the BMI, kind of the more grave the situation was for the patient. I agree. That's that's how I read. Everything that I saw seemed to lead towards that. This was an interesting study for anybody that's um, waiting for really great data. It looks like they have nearly 20-year data on this uh, Christina Barr's uh, study. I looked for more uh, more data that had been published, and, and what I'm finding mostly is... Um, like longitudinal or, or natural naturalistic data, what happens over time with these conditions. And I don't know that they have the ability to talk about interventions yet, but what they have done is used a CBT model for treatment of anorexia in that hospital. And and I didn't I didn't see outcomes data yet. But hoping that it comes at you know at some point we find something that's more helpful. Yeah. And and one of the things about this data that's worth notice noting is this is a specific specialty hospital and a lot of the data that we see published on on treatment of anorexia a lot of it comes out of hospitals now they had uh, apparently there's a German law that requires you to register so they were able to find everybody that had been admitted with you know al- almost everybody over 99 percent and follow up and see if somebody was still alive or not the only people they lost to follow up they they felt like either hadn't registered when they had moved or had moved out of country, which I thought was incredibly interesting that you hadn't like 99% follow up in the study. So I think we're going to see good naturalistic data out of this. It won't necessarily tell us what treatments will work, but it will tell us a lot about the illness, the illnesses and the conditions. And it seems to be fairly consistent with other data that's published, uh, similar kinds of standardized mortality ratios, or at least similar. Uh, percentages or similar ratios relative to the other conditions. So I think there's still some, uh, we're still finding ranges, but they seem to be narrowing those ranges down to SMRs between about 5 and 10 for anorexia. Yeah, that's exactly what I saw. I saw almost around the 5, but in, I think it was in this article they talked about the studies that had seen the, the 10 for their SMR, so I think that's about right, but most of them I saw were in the five range. Well, we're talking about this article and talking about natural causes for death. I think one of the things I'd like you to do is talk about what the physical presentations might be for um, for people with anorexia, and go ahead and maybe talk about indications for hospital treatment, Things that maybe uh, the family practice physicians might be looking for in terms of screening for this condition. Um, and then maybe, you know, let's talk about some of the things you have to watch for as you start treating this. Do you want to go ahead and start there? Yeah. So kind of if you're thinking of like a patient presentation and like the buzzwords that will make you think of anorexia um, include stuff like parotid gland hypertrophy. So I don't know if that like... I don't know how that really looks in physical, but like imagining fuller cheeks. You can actually see it. They become a little bit more prominent. Yeah, the weight loss both accentuates that, and then I think they become more well-developed because of the use, right? Mm -hmm. And and so you can actually kind of see that, and I suspect that you can Google photos of that if there's interest. And then um, things like dental caries, scars and calluses on their hands, dry, scaly skin, lunugo, which is like a really fine hair like not but like on their body right mm-hmm. and then 
GI things like gastroparesis, constipation, endocrine changes like amenorrhea, and then there is a lot of cardiac complications of anorexia. Um, as you are starting to see these and things, there are going to be some, some things that will make the patient have to be treated in the hospital. So this includes bradycardia, which is um, less than 40 beats per minute, hypotension, hypothermia, electrolyte disturbances, organ compromise, and then a BMI under 15. And I'm pretty sure one of the articles I read had really similar indications for hospital treatment. Those came from UWorld, but I think they were almost spot on to what I read in the articles. One of the challenges I think we had is that there's not a lot of standardized care for anorexia. I think we found marsipan. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. What does that stand for again? Um, it's oh, a, the <laughs> management of really sick patients with anorexia nervosa. Marsipan. Yep. And, and it, it actually looks like it's a pretty good strategy. I wish I had seen that article a little bit sooner in my my research, it looks like there's uh, there are some guidelines for treatment of anorexia that the American Psychiatric Association puts out, but even even with guidelines, um, there's still a lot of questions about how you go about something. Refeeding syndrome is one of the things that shows up uh, on the test. Things that you need to be aware of, right? Yeah. So there will. Like, if there's going to be a question about anorexia, I would make the guess that it's going to be something about refeeding syndrome, just because that is kind of one of the more um, dangerous complications of anorexia. So this actually occurs when you reintroduce carbs. It causes a spike in insulin, which leads to hypophosphatemia, and that can lead to a lot of serious complications, including congestive heart failure, seizures, arrhythmias, I mean, I'm pretty sure it can lead to death, and mm-hmm. so there are. It's a pretty serious complication that like is a really large amount of research on how to prevent it when you are refeeding a patient with anorexia. I really. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna go off that. There were a lot of nutritional questions on the questions that I went through, whether it was you know vitamin deficiencies or you know it may look like. Uh, a drunk because they have uh, Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome or what have you, but it really comes down to nutritional uh, abnormalities in a lot of the questions. I think that's a good way of thinking about both the anorexia, so that that gets to the recognition, right? If you have a patient that comes in with uh, some sort of uh, anemia that has the parotid gland enlargement, that has amenorrhea, um, bone densiometry kinds of things. All, all of those things are consequences of this condition, right? Mm-hmm. And they're very severe. Yeah. One of the things that used to be a, a focus of test questions was that this is a, a condition of Western societies, right? Interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> I suspected not because I think that has changed. So mm-hmm. I, I think I've been looking at test questions now for about 20, 25 years. <laughs> Don't want to fess up too much now. Um, and those test questions might be changing. One of the articles that you had me look at about refeeding was not just about refeeding in patients with anorexia, but was refeeding in a number of situations. And it was uh, out of Japan. Mm-hmm. I was initially like, oh, wow, Japan now has this problem, right? Because that problem was not as prominent 
20, 25 years ago as it is now. But as I read the article, it wasn't just about anorexia. It was about a number of different conditions, such as uh, problems with alcohol that led to absence of eating, uh, maybe some other sorts of conditions. I think cancer was one of the things that might lead to malnutrition, right? So, so anything that was malnutrition would lead to that. And yet the most concerning of the patients, there's a, well, let me back up a step. The, the focus of the study was to look at the NICE criteria and uh, NICE is actually uh, a group out of England, if I remember correctly, called the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, and they had put out a set of criteria to help stratify risk in refeeding that were associated with some major and minor symptoms, right? And I think mm -hmm. you have those maybe in front of you. What are yeah. those major symptoms and minor symptoms, or major risk factors and minor risk factors, I should say? So major risk factors included a BMI under 16, weight loss in the past six months, more than 15%, I'm assuming, of body weight, mm -hmm. um, little or no nutritional intake for greater than 10 days, and then low baseline levels of electrolytes, um, and that included phosphate, potassium, or magnesium. Right. Then the minor risk factors included a BMI between 16 and 18.5, weight loss in the past six months of greater than 10% and less than or equal to 15%, Literal, little or no nutritional intake for greater than five but less than or equal to 10 days, and then a history of alcohol use or therape therapeutic drug use, including insulin, chemotherapy, antacids, or diuretics. Now, the thing that struck me most about this was they still made a point of saying that the group that most commonly fell in that highest risk category were? I'm pretty sure that was the ones with the lowest BMI, right? That had anorexia. And it was young Japanese women with anorexia, it looked like, right? That, that looked like the category. I don't think they actually said anorexia because I'm not sure they used diagnostic criteria for anorexia, mm -hmm. but it looks like they were hinting at that. Yeah, I had like a little bit of a hard time, like, fully grasping where those like numbers are coming from when reading that one, but I, that is also the impression I, I gathered. Yeah, and what was interesting is they were looking at 30-day mortality, right? Mm -hmm. So based on these risk factors, 30-day mortality was surprisingly high. 30-day mm -hmm. mortality for the highest risk was somewhere around 50%. Yeah, there was some pretty stark numbers. <laughs> yeah. What, what, so, so one of the things that they said was, hey, there's not a standard of care for how we go about refeeding. And one of the things they talked about was, how do you know if somebody has already developed refeeding syndrome or if they are about to develop refeeding syndrome? And I thought that was an interesting question because I think we tend to look at the test questions. Does it say hypophosphatemia or not? If it says hypophos, well then, darn it, this is a refeeding syndrome, right? right? But if it doesn't say hypophosphatemia, then maybe it isn't. But I think they were making the case that people that have been drinking a lot, maybe that should be a major risk factor, and that they maybe they already have developed uh, refeeding syndrome as opposed to undeveloped refeeding syndrome that it's initiated or induced by uh, having too many carbohydrates. I thought it was a fascinating discussion, and it led me to think a lot more about the standard of care. Why is that important? <laughs> what Lots specifically, of yeah. <laughs> well, I, boy, isn't that a great attending question? It has no good answer to it. 
I, I try so hard not I to ask those the, terrible questions. I think the one thing that is important about that article in general is that a lot of the people who are listening to this are not going to go into psych. Maybe you won't see anorexia as commonly as a lot of these other conditions, including cancer, alcohol use. So just kind of like knowing those things can help almost all of us in our future careers. And I think by saying knowing those things, it is that those risk factors do help you stratify the uh, 30-day mortality. Also knowing that those risk factors may be adjusted incorrectly. Alcohol uh, use over the previous period may be a higher factor uh, than, uh, maybe a major risk factor rather than a minor risk factor. And also being aware that if you have somebody that comes in in malnutrition, um, knowing how to refeed is important. Mm -hmm. Now, I think also in terms of patients with anorexia, it becomes important because there's some data that says the more quickly you can get weight in somebody and the higher you can get that BMI quickly, the greater the outcome. And the refeeding proposals generally say start low and go slow. And mm -hmm. so if you start off too low and go too slow, then you delay that time to a better BMI. It's been my impression here at the state hospital that when my patients don't have a high enough BMI, you see that show up cognitively. And that cognitive ability doesn't start to return until the BMI gets closer to 18, right? 17 to 18, you start seeing that thinking improve and the rationality of the thinking uh, get to a point where it makes some sort of sense, right? When, when people's BMI is down around 14 or 15, they're pretty sure that they can drop another 10 or 20 pounds now, somebody that's under 80 pounds, somewhere between 80 and 90 pounds, I should probably say, and 5'10", that's a, that's a problem, right? They're, they're already not functioning well. They're already too weak to stand up very easily. They're already struggling to, you know, do anything physically, and they're thinking if they can just get, you know, another 5 to 10 pounds, they'll be fine, and they can stop there. And that never stops, right? Mm -hmm. And until we get that BMI up higher, we just don't see the cognition kick in. So, I, so, so this is important in terms of, getting that weight up quickly, right? Yeah. Does that sound like some of the things you looked at? Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. I saw a lot of that. I also saw a few that said, even if you do get the weight on, there is like a risk that those obsessive thoughts of weight loss don't go away, which I thought was interesting. And uh, one, of the, one of the side effects that really can last your whole life is the cognitive impairment that comes from your like brain literally loses mass from this disorder or yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It seems to be something that permanently affects people. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I, I'm hoping happens at some point in the future is that we look at that Minnesota starvation study. Um, I think I sent you a copy of it very, very late in this mm -hmm. process. And my understanding of the study is that conscientious objectors in World War II were given the option to participate in the starvation study. And eating disorders abounded. So they were, as I understood the study, they were modeling what might be happening in the concentration camps and how we might tackle that. And uh, the outcomes were horrible, right? Um, profound eating disorders amongst a lot of people and throughout their lifetime. And I assume that it has something to do with affecting the, the brain, right? Mm -hmm. There's also been a couple of articles that have uh, come across my desk over the years where differences in inflammatory uh, cytokines seem to pop up in eating disorders. But again, a, a lot of times we go back to the Western 
uh, the risk factor of being in a Western, quote, Western society, end quote, and a non-Western society and how the body image and the media, I think there were all of these thoughts about it. And so this might be one of those conditions that once you get started in the process, you tip over the balance, change the brain, you move into a starvation mindset, there might be some compensatory mechanisms in the brain that put you in safety mode so that you can survive long enough to reproduce, so to speak, right, and maintain the genes. Um, but I don't know, that's all very speculative on my part because it feels like we don't have really great answers that I've found yet as to why anorexia exists. Yeah, I don't know either, obviously, but I would say that is like an interesting point about um, kind of like those movements towards like trying to hold on to reproductive because I read an article about how even though they don't have their period, and we should also note that this is not a condition that only affects women, it mostly affects women, but it can also affect men, um, but even though a lot of these patients may not have their period, they still are able to um, ovulate and get pregnant, which I thought was interesting and something I didn't know. And it's very, and which would be very dangerous for the patient and for the fetus. So that was interesting. And then another thing that was kind of on that same, oh, is that um, almost every single patient with anorexia has bradycardia. And they speculate that that is... Well, it's because of increased vagal tone, which they speculate is because it's the body compensating and holding on to energy by kind of, you know, slowing stuff down, which is kind of supports that idea. Very interesting. I, I saw that heart rate variability is reduced in our patients with anorexia. That's something that's interesting to me. I don't remember learning about it in medical school. Doesn't mean somebody tried to teach it to me. Doesn't mean somebody didn't try to teach it to me. But I don't remember it, and I think this is the second or third podcast where we've had heart rate variability show up as something that is increasingly considered by uh, researchers of the articles we're reading as being important. So, I, There are treatments for anorexia. Mm -hmm. There's a study you shared with me about uh, olanzapine. Yeah. Were you impressed by no. <laughs> I wasn't either. Yeah, it was kind of like, it was seemingly really hopeful because I know now that we've been here and really interacting with these patients, that is some, a concern for a lot of these patients is the significant weight gain they have when taking olanzapine. So at first I was like, oh, that's pretty like exciting. I should read that article first. Actually, it was the first one I read. And yeah, the results just like weren't that great. It was very mild increase in compared to the controls and... Um, but that is actually something you should note for the exam because that it could be a test question. Seems or... like that's the only medication that has a, very much data behind it is mm -hmm. olanzapine. Uh, Meta-analysis of all antipsychotics doesn't show benefit. The only thing that seems to have any signal is olanzapine. It may or may not be because it increases uh, hunger. Uh, it seems like though the obsessive thoughts about um, body image eating and so forth don't get changed by olanzapine. What you do get is about a half a pound more weight in a 5'10 person compared to somebody that's without that and going through treatment as usual. Does that sound like the conclusions you read? Yeah. And on the test prep information, you know, for bulimia and for binge eating disorders, it's the SSRIs that m medically treat it, where for anorexia, we're looking at the olanzapine for that. 
But some of the other sources that I read said, but don't discount using an SSRI for these patients with anorexia. It's just not going to help them gain the weight. So if you see a comorbid condition, which is sometimes the, the things that are tricky in uh, the test questions, if you're looking at treating the comorbidity, you might use an SSRI, but it won't affect the anorexia, right? Yeah, it'll help the depression or other symptoms they may have, but not help with the uh, anorexia itself. And again, I want to point out that antidepressants, the SSRIs, really do seem to help quite a bit with uh, bulimia nervosa. They seem to, uh, in my experience, has been in the past that the data that suggests they're effective seems to show up in the real world as being effective too, almost totally shutting off that uh, the compensatory activities. It's amazing to me. Yeah, in the test you'll see fluoxetine as kind of the treatment of choice for bulimia. So that's kind of a, a grouping or like two things that you should think of when on the exam. And bulimia and fluoxetine, I think that's a great thing to remember. Uh, the other thing that I think is worth pointing out is that there is some pretty good data. Last I looked uh, three or four years ago, there was some very good data about family therapy for treatment of anorexia with uh, teenage girls. Mm -hmm. uh, what else did you run across as treatments or what other principles were tested when you were looking through uh, your prep materials with regards to psychotherapies that are used for treatment of anorexia? So I think that um, family therapy and nutritional rehab are the two big things for the test to keep in mind. Family therapy being like I think that was a test question in itself. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't read a lot of articles on treatments for the obsessive, which is interesting. I mostly focused on the refeeding aspect, so I can't speak to the research, but for your tests, you should know family therapy and then also nutritional rehab. Also, and, oh, go ahead. I just was going to say I also saw CBT come up a number of times for all three eating disorders. Um, that That was one of the common treatments for all of them. Normally, I look at the Cochrane database to see if they have some sort of uh, meta-analysis looking at psychotherapies for the the topic that we're tackling. Just didn't make it there today. <laughs> but I read a lot of interesting stuff. I, I really felt like I had a knowledge gap about refeeding syndrome. I, I was aware of hypophosphatemia as being a buzzword, but I didn't fully understand. Um, it, it's probably a broader electrolyte issue. Um, mm -hmm probably hypokalemia, hypokalemia, right? Not hyperkalemia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, hypomagnesemia. Yes. Um, in addition to just the, the complete physical impairment that comes with uh, the loss of sufficient energy to run your body. What, what have we not talked about that you still want to talk about? I mean, I think we've hit a lot of the big things. I would say like the thing that was probably most interesting to me that we maybe didn't talk about was kind of the non-buzzword side effects of having anorexia. Things like um, SMA syndrome, which we learned about in school, but is not commonly tested on so far in the new world I've, as I've seen. Things like delayed colonic emptying. And okay, hold on. So what's SMA? So it's when you lose so much fat that your um, like fat pad that protects your superior mesenteric artery. Yeah, mm -hmm. Jonathan, you make sure I'm not saying mm -hmm. it wrong. Oh, so you get an uh, infarct in it. So, so actually, it it obstructs your duodenum. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's like a mechanical obstruction. 
And I can't remember where we learned it. It's most common with, but it can happen with anorexia. Yeah, it, we just talked about it with um, rapid weight loss. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So somebody that gets cachectic or has cancer and is losing weight quickly, mm-hmm. so or it could even be someone who had you know gastric bypass or something like that. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then other things like let's see, there are so many things that can occur with anorexia, which is also pretty interesting. But another one that stuck out to me was weakened pharyngeal muscles, which causes a difficulty in swallowing because Mm. you just have so little energy and you're not, if you're restricting, you're not using those muscles, just things like that, that like, I would never think about that really fascinated me while I was doing research. I always think about one of the things that I thought about a lot was how the energy metabolism takes energy from the heart muscle itself, right? Mm-hmm. So you start getting things like mitral valve prolapse, and for whatever reason, pericardial effusion starts showing up, mm-hmm. right? So there can be a lot of cardiac pathology just associated with the body stealing protein from the heart, I think. Yeah, yeah they also, in one of the articles I read, talked about that with the hypotension, that that's the cause of the hypotension is the heart is just not contracting as hard. Just doesn't have the ability to. Yeah, and that's actually one, like, the more, the cardiac considerations are the more concerning ones, too. And there was a whole article I read about just the cardiac complications. And it's pretty fascinating stuff, and it's very scary, yeah. It, it is scary. It's it's an early side effect, and it seemed like that was one of the, in the low BMI setting, that seems like that's the quickest pathway to death from anorexia, some yeah. sort of cardiovascular uh, outcome. And then... In addition to that, if if you make it through those years, right, mm-hmm. then there's all of the, like the endocrinology kinds of things with bone density being low, with multiple fractures, changes in thyroid function, um, it just goes on and on. This yeah. is a this is a condition that dramatically and and it seems, in many ways, permanently changes the body in a way that it can't really bounce back. Earlier recognition, more rapid treatment, and more durability of treatment are all necessary. I think. Yeah, I'd agree. I would say the two like complications that are lifelong are that cognitive impairment and the increased risk risk of fractures fractures due to low bone density. A lot of this stuff can be reversed if they are able to get their weight back into their into a more expected weight. I think some of the heart. I don't know if the does the mitral valve prolapse return. I, do, I don't. I'm not as I don't know the answer to those things. I'm not sure on that one, but most of what I read was, like, this, that specific article that was called Medical Complications of Anorexia said the only two that are lifelong are the cognitive impairment and the um, increased fracture risk. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a good chance that there is an ability to recover from that, but maybe, I'm sure some people don't, though. I, I don't know yeah. the answer to that. I'm, I, I learned something every time. I looked through that article, but I, I looked at it, and I was so overwhelmed by all of the <laughs> medical complications. I thought, I can't get through this today. <laughs> it was definitely very long and a lot of different things for one condition. So Yeah, I think, I think uh, buzzwords, though, are very helpful. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about refeeding syndrome, that would be one set of buzzwords. If you're thinking about the complications of the illness and identifying it, that's another set of buzzwords. If you're thinking about distinguishing between uh, bulimia and anorexia, that's another set of buzzwords. And I think if you kind of pick up on those buzzwords, it will help you prepare for the shelf exam. Mm-hmm. I agree. What else do we need to talk about? I think that's 
basically all I read a ton about refeeding methods, but that could be a podcast in itself. So I don't know if we really <laughs> want to open that can of worms. That was a, like a 20 page article. <laughs> yeah. I think the issue came primarily down to recognize that refeeding can happen. Refeeding syndrome can happen. Mm-hmm. Know that the longer you take to refeed somebody and get the weight up, the, there seem to be negative consequences from that. And if you go too quickly, there are negative consequences. Hence, you'll probably be tested on what happens if you refeed too quickly, right? Right. Yeah, Yeah, that article basically said that if they're in the mild to moderate range for their BMI, that you can refeed a little bit more aggressively. If they're not, if they're in the extreme, severe, low BMI, then, then you stick to the following low and slow. So. Yeah. And I think some of those studies were coming out of Asia that we were looking at for how to go about refeeding, which you know led to more surprise on my part. This isn't just a Western civilization illness anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know that I have anything else to ask. I think we're probably covered everything and maybe some of it twice at this point. <laughs> yes. uh, so on that note, guys, thank you so much for a wonderful podcast. You did a great job. Thank, thank you. Thank you for Thanks, developing Dr. the uh, Anorexia podcast. Look forward to your podcast tomorrow, Jonathan, which will be? Uh, on obstructive sleep apnea. A very pertinent topic for maybe at least two-thirds of the crowd here, right? <laughs> uh, thank you again, Julia. On that note, team out. Team out. Team out.